So the first thing I did was I thought about my wife because she's clearly someone who has experience with settling in a marriage. And I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, if one of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the Following Films Network. So, speaking of the Following Films Network, uh, to as my co-host this week, I have the host of the Following Films Podcast, Chris Maynard. So, thanks for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, anytime. Uh, you are my go-to when it comes to horror movies. And this week we are we are doing a horror movie. We are taking a look at Slither, which is written and directed by James Gunn to tie in with James Gunn's uh, next written horror film, uh, The Belko Experiment. So uh, before we kind of jump into all that, uh, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I, I do. Um, when you told me the theme of the movie, it's just kind of a, it's touched on. It doesn't feel like it's the actual overall theme of it, mm-hmm. but the idea of settling in marriage, that, that was the theme, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay. I'm glad I didn't look up the wrong stuff here. <laughs> so the first thing I did was I thought about my wife because she's clearly someone who has experience <laughs> with settling in a marriage. And did you just say, what's thought, your favorite movie, honey? She no, clearly... I will not her favorite, but what is the one that you relate to the most? Um, okay. And she mentioned uh fried green tomatoes i never would have thought about it but Hmm. the uh kathy bates character in it and how her husband is kind of you know stuck in this rut and not really doing much with his life and she starts improving herself and redefining herself and so that that, i think that's actually a really underrated well actually it's probably rated just fine uh amongst certain people it's an enjoyable movie yeah absolutely it's a good little movie one people should check out um and then I was thinking kind of outside of that for myself, the one I immediately thought of uh, was Eyes Wide Shut, mm. just because it's a small little portion of it. But the idea of settling um, when Nicole Kidman has that moment where she has the flashback of the sailor and oh, she's explaining right. to Tom Cruise how she would have fucked him, you know, that day if he would have walked over and asked. And, you know, that continue, that idea of I mean, she still would today and she thinks about him almost every day that that, you know, was awesome. Not necessarily the overall theme of settling, but it's uh definitely a portion of it and believe it or not it was harder for me to find movies that had that as a big theme in it um, yeah for settling do you have ones that you were thinking of uh that's a good question you know i i never think about this this is your job uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but in terms of settling i mean i think it's something that comes up in a lot of movies like i'm sure if you just like picked 10 movies probably two or three of them it would be in there but like you said it's not this it's not this major theme um mm-hmm. But I think I'm trying to think of like uh, like romantic comedies. Uh, it pr- it probably but, comes up in there. But they're all that way, and they all they all sort of. When I was thinking about that, like something like Knocked Up is a movie that's really about settling. But yeah. then that's about how settling is actually how you find true love, which right. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good message. How romantic! Um, <laughs> it, it's stop it's, looking. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> It's probably more realistic than the Disney shit, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, so before we take our break and I talk about settling from a psychological perspective, why don't you uh, tell people about your podcast and uh, where they can listen? Oh, uh, you can find it at followingfilms.com anywhere that you're listening to a podcast. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you can find 
uh, my show there. It's just a film interview show. I talk to different filmmakers, uh, people involved in the industry, producers, directors, writers. Um, occasionally I'll talk to a film critic or another fan of certain films and yeah, just uh, talk about movies for about a half hour or so. Nice. All right. So we will take a break and then I'll talk about settling and we'll bring Chris back to talk about Slither. Shannon. CG. Lauren. And Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so we're back, and it's time to talk about the psychological stuff. So today we're talking about settling, specifically settling in a relationship. And I think most people know what this is, but if you don't, it's kind of the idea that you find someone good enough, maybe not the person you desperately want to be with, but someone who matches you just well enough, and you make that compromise to be with one another. So it's not the most fun topic, right? Uh, so the first thing we're going to look at is an article by a PhD in psychology named Juliana Brines. Uh, and she wrote an article for Psychology Today about four reasons not to settle in a relationship. So she starts off kind of talking about how settling is a really ugly, depressing word. And few people would suggest outright that you should just settle for less than you want in a relationship. But that pressure to settle gets really real, even if it's not this explicit communication. People who are single after a certain age, uh, especially women, may be seen as too picky or that they should lower their standards. And they also get this social stigma due to this single status. Uh, and it's actually been given a name by another psychologist named Bella DiPaolo, and, and they call it singleism. And actually, if you want an interesting kind of crazy movie about that, you should check out a movie from uh, from 2016 called The Lobster, which kind of, I think, talks a lot about that. So really where the problems arise is in a lot of ways in our in our society, in our culture, and in many cultures, our worth is tied to our ability to find a mate. So marriage marks this kind of passage into being an, being an adult and is your quote-unquote most important adult relationship. And you, there's this idea that you're not complete until you find your quote-unquote other half. And then, you know, you throw in the aspect of like, if you want to have kids, your your biological clock is ticking or whatever you want to call it. So there's more pressure there. So of course, people get rushed to settle down before they're ready or before they find the right person. So she goes into four reasons why you shouldn't do this. Uh, if you're if you're kind of scared of not finding someone. So she says the fear of being alone can actually skew your priorities. There was a bunch of studies recently that found that people who are afraid of being single would agree with statements like, I feel like it is close to being too late for me to find the love of my life, or as I get older, it will be harder and harder to find someone. So they are more likely to prioritize being in a relationship just generally over the quality of that relationship or that partner. Now, in a longitudinal study, a study over many, many years, people who feared being single were less likely to end a bad relationship. And in a mock online dating study, these individuals were more likely to expect to express interest in dating someone whose online profile included really kind of awful statements like, I love what I do, so I need someone who respects that and is willing to take the back seat when necessary. So they are willing, if you kind of extrapolate that, they're willing to take the back seat to their partners, which sometimes taking the back seat to your partner is okay, but if you're doing that all the time, that leads to really unhealthy relationships. And some people would say, well, you know, maybe that that not 
great relationship is better than no relationship at all. And actually, the researchers found that fearful participants in bad relationships were just as depressed and lonely as fearful participants who were single. So you're kind of in the same place, whether you're with someone or not, if you're in that bad relationship. Now, it's understandable that we seek out these intimate relationships because social connection is really important to our well-being. But if fear is driving you towards these romantic decisions, it can lead to really poor judgment and choose relationships that are either not going to last, that make us feel bad, or leave us vulnerable to abuse. The second thing to look at is being single actually has a lot of benefits. So the downsides of being single are compounded by that stigma we talked about. So singles in some studies have been assumed to be immature, maladjusted, or selfish, and they've actually faced certain forms of discrimination, such as being more likely to have a rental application denied in favor of a married couple. But in reality, single people may actually be less self-centered and more giving than married or cohabitating couples. These studies show that they're more likely to help out friends, family members, and ailing parents. So the idea here is you really need to debunk these harmful myths about single people because there's a lot of good things about single people and about being single. The third thing is the possibility of finding true love may be worth the risk of not finding it. So yes, settling is the safest bet and holding out is a gamble. But there's a reasonable chance that you won't find true love at all. But the payoff if you do find that person who's best for you is so much bigger. So for every every time you hear a story about someone who's too picky and ended up alone and miserable, kind of the old maid stereotype, there's another story about someone who stuck to what they believed in despite being harassed by friends and family and the culture at large and ultimately found someone really great who made that wait worth it. And the fourth thing is to remember, we have this attitude of like, well, if you're settling, that means the person has flaws, but everyone has flaws. So accepting a person's flaws does not mean having to settle for them. So yes, sometimes people are way too perfectionistic about the qualities they want in a partner, and as a consequence, will reject really great people for superficial reasons. Like they mentioned like height, like not being tall enough, that probably won't matter in the long run, like things like empathy and kindness. Now, settling for someone who is not as handsome or as talented as a movie star is probably actually not that bad of a thing. But when you fall in love with someone, accepting their shortcomings actually doesn't even feel like settling anymore. In fact, one of the hallmarks of a happy relationship is our tendency to idealize our partners and see their vices as virtues. So instead of like making a pro and con list and picking apart their negative and positive qualities, we should just look at the whole picture of who they are as a person and how you feel when you're talking to them, when you're with them. So if the relationship feels right as a whole and the important things are covered like you share the same values, then really even if they have flaws just like you do, then you're not actually settling. So that is I think the overarching theme of this article is like – it's easy to think we're settling when we when we distance ourselves from our relationships, but that's not how relationships work. We are very close to them. We are very – we're right next to them, so we're not going to see the whole picture. So it's more about how you feel when you're with that person. All right. So our second article is also from a PhD uh, named Mark White. This is also on Psychology Today, and he offers a better way to think about settling in relationships. So when you hear people talking about relationships, you'll hear things like he or she is fine, but I think I could do better, or am I settling for them? And there are lots of reasons we think like this, such as the belief we will find, quote unquote, the one if we keep looking, and this anxiety about uh, what he calls the romantic equivalent of musical chairs and ending up either with the wrong person or no person at all. But there's another reason. We have this impulse to measure the traits of potential partners and use them to kind of make comparisons among them. 
which can lead us to worry that we've sold ourselves short and settled for something or someone less than we deserve. And it's interesting. These two things are kind of opposite, right? Like one side of this says there's one person we're meant to be with. And the other says everybody's about the same, but some are just a little better than others. But there isn't this preordained one for each of us. And these potential partners are not so similar that we can just compare them based on measurable attributes like characters in a role-playing game. Most of our traits whether they're physical, emotional, intellectual, or complex and multifaceted, that they can't be summed up by a single number. And even if we could do that, we'd have to rank those traits by how much they meant to us. Like, does intelligence count as much as beauty? What about sense of humor, kindness, honesty? Where do these things rank? Now, of course, we don't have to actually list all these traits. We simply say, okay, person A is better than person C, and person B is better looking than person D. But the effect is basically the same. We're reducing people to these characteristics and focusing on those instead of appreciating this whole person. Now, instead of focusing on these traits, what we should really be focusing on is that unique connection that we can make. And I think we actually see this in the movie, although there's a romantic relationship that never really happens. I think between those two characters, you can really see their connection. Whereas the person that the main character is with, you don't really see that connection maybe until the end of the film, which makes this kind of an interesting dialogue between these two prospective relationships. Now, if you want to simplify things further, you can actually just recognize we don't always reduce people to traits at all. We can judge a person in their entirety and still say, still say things like, he isn't good enough or I can do better than, than he or she. So we shouldn't evaluate potential partners on whether they're good enough, but on whether they are right for us. So it's basically, do, does this person fit with me? It's not so much they're a 10 on all these scales, but how do we connect? How do we, how do we, interact? How do we relate? So in terms of settling or thinking you can do better, thinking in terms of the right person instead of the best person doesn't dismiss these concerns about settling, but it puts them in a totally different light. So rather than representing this idealistic search for the one, the right person, it actually can incorporate the changes in your life circumstances that lead to concerns about settling in the first place. So consider what right actually means. It's right for who you are right now at this time in your life. Your vision of the right person is going to look a lot different when you're in your 20s and haven't kind of figured out your career, your place in the world, than it does when you're in your 40s with hopefully a lot of your life on more solid ground. So it's not so much that you settle when you're older, but you're looking at people from this different vantage point, this experience vantage point, rather than your quote unquote naive 20s. You start to value different things. So yes, these traits and characteristics do still matter. It's just viewing them in the proper light. So there are things you might not have thought that you would have valued when you were younger at all. You don't think about them. So when you're in your, when you're in your twenties, that can sound like settling, but you can't judge the decision you make in your forties from the viewpoint of who you were in your twenties. Now it's also important to mention that we're compelled to like measure people in this way and make comparisons because we do the same thing internally, do the same thing to ourselves. So this is just as pointless as measuring other people and comparing other people for all the reasons we've gone over, but it can actually be self-destructive and can sabotage your future relationships. It can lead you to think that other people are quote unquote out of your league because you don't rank yourself as highly as you rank them, or it can work the other way around and you could miss out on something really great because you think they are less than, and I deserve someone who is at my level or above. So as you can, as you can tell, there's a lot of kind of different things that go into this idea of settling and figuring out if it really is. And I think if you watch the movie, if you watch Slither, I think there's one character that she, that she is settling for. And it's also 
Uh, it's also important to bring up that you can settle for things that are not just romantic. I think, you know, Nathan Fillion's character, he is settled for this life in this small town. And so has and so has the, the lead female character. She's settled for this life because she decided not to run off and go to Hollywood for whatever reasons. And the, the movie kind of takes a closer look at that. But you can settle for a lot of things. It doesn't mean that life choice is bad. It just means like you might look at it and think like, oh, what if I had done this? What if I had been with this person? So settling in itself is not necessarily a terrible thing, but if you view it as settling, that's when it becomes negative. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. Uh, We're going to take a little break and then bring back Chris Maynard of Following Films to talk about Slither. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so we're back now it's time to talk about the movie so uh we always kind of talk about our history with these with these movies mine is not much this was a first time watch for me it was one of those (laughs) movies that kind of was always there like kind of like obviously since 2006 a bunch of my friends uh watched it and really liked it it became a cult hit and of course uh i think it got a little bit even more it got even more known once james gunn kind of blew up uh not only with guardians of the galaxy but with with super being kind of like a like another one of those those movies that uh, gets really good word of mouth and people end up talking about. Uh, so I finally sat down and watched it. And uh, it's it's really interesting to think about the fact that someone gave this guy like a $200 million budget <laughs> not that many years after this came out. So I would love I would love to have been there in the room when people were going, you know who we should give Guardians of the Galaxy to? Not that Guardians of the Galaxy isn't weird and doesn't fit that kind of James Gunn style. It does a little bit. But, like, imagine being the money guy in the room and they go, yeah, he made this movie about slugs. It was great. Like, how did that conversation go? Uh, but what about you? What's your what's your history with Slither? Um, well, I'll get into that, but I do want to touch on what, what you are just talking about mm-hmm. because I think that James Gunn is the perfect movie to take on a film like that. Um, you get somebody who made Slither, which was a $15 million movie that ended up grossing about half that. Uh, and then you have Super, which was a movie that was um, barely seen at all, had pretty much, I think it was like a day and date release more or less, mm-hmm. and kind of disappeared after that. You're right. It had good word of mouth, kind of a cult film. Right. But like most cult films that are actually cult films didn't make anything. Right. So you have a guy like that that actually has a strong story sense. He's a good writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then – you can, you know, bring on board somebody like that that can bring his sort of sensibility to it and you can control all the big story elements about where it needs to go, the visual, sure. you know, kind of stuff, the special effects, no big deal. This will just be the guy that can, you know, punch up the dialogue and make it a little <laughs> bit more interesting. It seems like the perfect guy for it because it's if you bring in a Tarantino movie, <laughs> he's going to demand final cut. You bring in right. James Gunn at that point in time. A guy who's um, never and- made money. Exactly. <laughs> like, or so, at least not big money. Well, that, that's that's actually where I was going to get to come back around to that, where um, he had made a lot of money in certain films, uh, but as a writer. Right. 
uh, I became aware of him with Tromeo and Juliet mm-hmm. because I was a big uh, Troma fan. And, you know, when I was in a middle school and high school, I loved the Toxic Avenger movies and the uh, Sergeant Kabuki movies, all that kind of stuff. And he wrote one that was a really fucked up little movie called Tromeo and Juliet. Mm. Um, I remember hearing just, about that. Yeah. It's an absurd movie. And he got his start in that um, working with uh, Lloyd Kaufman for Troma. And so then he kind of broke out from that and he did the Scooby-Doo screenplay, I believe was the first one. Um, and then uh, that, that made a shit ton of money. And then he yeah. followed that up with the Dawn of the Dead adaptation, which I had no interest in. Um, but because I was such a huge fan of the original and then I saw it and it was actually a really smart adaptation of that. I thought I might I have to watch some that ways then. Actually, what's that? I said, I might have to watch that then. That's one that I've kind of, kind of avoided because i i probably the same thought process you had that i really like the original and i'm not sure i want to put myself through through an update well believe it or not this is how long ago that was um that my trepidation wasn't towards Zack snyder with (laughs) dawn of the dead it was towards james gunn because he had written a scooby-doo movie right so that was where i was nervous times have changed And so then, and that movie was huge, did really well. Yeah. And so then, um, after that there was Slither. So I'd been kind of following this guy for a long time. So I was re- really excited when he had this, uh, directorial debut. Um, so, or the, was that, I think that was his first, isn't this his first movie that yeah. he directed? Yep. Okay. This is his directorial um, debut for sure. So I, I was pretty excited for this and actually saw this in the theater and <laughs> I, I was a big fan of it. Um, I think I was, a, I have more or less aware of Nathan Fillion at this point. I don't know if I had watched Firefly. Yeah. Uh, the one but he's part of the of zeitgeist at that point. Like, yeah, even if you yeah, hadn't seen the, it, you knew who he was. Exactly. Well, and I mean, that's one of the fun things about going back and rewatching this because, uh, you know, Pam from the office is in here. I know. Right. <laughs> I had that well, moment she, like, what? <laughs> what is happening? She was right married now? to James Gunn, I believe. Jesus. <laughs> Not yeah. This this is one of those movies. So it's it's really interesting for me to to do an episode on a movie like this because you know we started this show kind of looking at like we can take any movie and find something in there that we can talk about psychologically. And this is this is the test, right? If you can take a movie like Slither and like let's really break this down. Uh, but this was actually a really fun movie for me to watch. Like I. It's interesting, like talking about this movie in terms of quality seems ridiculous. Like it's for me, it's like it's a very, very well-made B movie. And it reminded me a lot of something like Tremors. Like it's not something that you're going to like, hey, let me let me show all my my film Twitter friends this fantastic film. Like it's not that kind of movie, but it's just a lot of fun all the way through. It's definitely gross. It's definitely over the top. But the gore didn't get to me because I think it's so over the top. Like I don't think there's ever a moment where you're supposed to take this seriously. No. Oh, God, no. There, there's uh, it's this the tongue is firmly in its cheek in this movie almost it's through well the cheek like it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> it knows what it's doing and i think that um you're right to compare it to tremors uh, it's definitely kind of that you know 1950s throwback creature feature mm-hmm. but i mean that comes to the also where he got to start working in the trauma movies right. um that this is a you know those lloyd kaufman flicks i were clearly a big influence on him but there's it, for as batshit crazy as this movie is, it's it's it is controlled and it's fun. And a lot of movies like this have third act problems where you just really give up by the end. And right. The, 
it's worn thin. And I think this is a movie that actually does, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah, I, I enjoy this movie the entire time. Not one I'd put on once a week, but uh, de- definitely one that I would recommend to people that aren't too pretentious in their film taste. Right. Yeah. This is, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, it, it knows what it is. And I think we need movies like that. We need movies yes. that kind of, that aren't, that aren't looking to, to be a part of the Criterion collection, you know, like we, <laughs> we need movies that like, you know, you could put this on granted, you know, it has to be on some sort of pay station because of all the gore and the violence, but like a movie that you could just put on and you don't expect so much of it. You just expect it to be entertaining and to be fun and to be gross and to be over the top. My only question was wondering like how we convinced all these people to, to be in this movie. Like there's actually some, uh, like, you know, well-known actors is probably a stretch, but some, and maybe got more well-known after this movie was really interesting to see like uh, Elizabeth Banks here in a role in Slither. I was like, what, what is happening right now? I I, don't, I would need to actually pull it up and do a little bit more research, but I don't know what else Elizabeth Banks had done at the time. She was familiar with her, but honestly, to me, the most famous person here when I saw this at the time was Michael Rooker. Yeah, you know that was Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. That was the the big get for me, and uh, everybody else kind of came into their own right around this time. And you know, Michael Rooker has just kept on trucking along at the uh, exact same rate, and I think he's probably. Maybe even now he's had this weird resurgence with The Walking Dead. but uh, Right. Yeah. And then, of course, being in James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Oh, so. yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I have a disconnect from that movie, though. I've only <laughs> seen it the one time right. uh, when it first came out. And that was kind of the movie that ended all Marvel movies for me that I was like, <laughs> I'm over this shit. I'm done. I'm checking out. Well, so. speaking of Elizabeth Banks, this is like right after The 40-Year-Old Virgin. So she oh, was okay. I think she was kind of on her way up as far as comedy, but not super well known. So it makes sense that she would be in a movie like Slither. Um, but I think she's the type of person that would do this now. Though she seems really game, you know. Like yeah. she seems like a gamer. Like yeah, let's have some fun, you know. I'm not. She doesn't seem like she takes herself or. And this sounds like an insult, but it's not. But like she doesn't take her career too seriously. Like she's just. Right. She knows she's kind of living the dream and kind of enjoying herself. So. Let's have a good time. And she definitely does. She reminds me of Rosario Dawson in that sense, mm-hmm. where I, I remember the story about her when she was doing Clerks 2. Um, the main reason that she signed on to do that movie was because of the donkey scene. And she's like, oh, I, <laughs> I just I fell in love movie. more with her. That's fantastic. That That's yeah, exactly. what brought her in. <laughs> that, that was it. She didn't care about any other part. She's like, oh, no, no, there, there's there's, you know, there's a donkey show. All right, let's do I'm it. Let's do this. <laughs> So, and I think Elizabeth Banks, uh, to a lesser degree, but she's absolutely one of those people that's like, yeah, this is, let's just do something fun. Cause right. if you look at, um, what's that karaoke movie that she did that's so huge that everybody seems to love? <laughs> Pitch perfect. There you go. And she like, directed the second one too. So there, there you go. And, but those are movies that I would assume uh, if you're looking at it from a career sort of four quadrant point of view, right from the outside, they would probably tell you not to do that movie. Definitely. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that karaoke movie. That's, that's what I'm going to call it from now on. That's, that's just gonna be. I mean, because you're not wrong. I mean, it's a little bit of a dick move, but you're not wrong. Like, all right. Um, so we were talking about James Gunn earlier. So let's let's talk about the direction. So what did you think of James Gunn's direction here in Slither? Like, can you see like what you know producers would see down the line that there's that there's some real talent here? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think in the sense that it it's what you were talking about before, because this is a gory as hell movie, but it always feels funny. It never goes mm-hmm. too far. It never, 
I think there's one moment in the beginning when Elizabeth Banks first goes into the basement that it feels like it's really going for a scare. Yes. But the rest of the movie doesn't seem like it's trying to go for that at all. Um, and most films that sort of do the horror comedy thing, most of the time they fail at it um, because yeah. they're trying to strike that balance between the two and never really succeeding at either. Um, with this, I feel like James Gunn was really just, this is a comedy. Uh, the horror is just really incredibly secondary, if not third down the line yeah. in other things that he's trying to accomplish. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's some, you know, I, there's like, if you're a real like horror fan who has a lot of history with horror, I'm sure you will see many more references than, than <laughs> I do. I was, sure. I was looking things up and be like, Oh, it was just like this movie. And just like that movie, I was like, yeah, I've never seen any of those. Uh, but one thing but, I did but, notice, what it, are those? Oh, I don't remember. Come on. They all okay. they all blend together for me. I could look it up for you and let you know. <laughs> you like, probably like Night of Olympus and shit like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. But one of the things that I noticed right away was this kind of Evil Dead uh, influence on the movie. Like when the the opening of the film, you have this, you know, this creature crash land. Uh, and then it kind of later in the film, it runs through the forest and you have that kind of first person view through the oh, woods okay. as it yeah. makes its first attack. And I really like that that little little nod. But one thing I found. I don't know if it's good or bad. I just found it curious, a choice that James Gunn made. There's When these people are first infected, they crave raw meat, right? That's this big mm-hmm. plot line where they have to just, they just keep repeating the word meat and go to eat it. Uh, but of all the things they show in this movie, all the crazy stuff they show, they always have those moments in shadow where people are eating the raw meat. And with everything else that goes on in this movie with like, you know – giant bodies exploding into millions of slugs like we show that up close but i found it interesting that like this whole this person eating raw meat they chose to keep hidden in the shadows yeah i mean you literally have close-up of pets that have been mutilated in yeah, the basement and it tends to hide dismembered that. yeah it, it's it, you're right it isn't an, I, i'm sure that there's a choice there um, the exact reason for it. I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I guess we could guess as to the reasons why, but I honestly have no idea why they would leave that out, uh, tonally. And maybe it is one of those things where there's enough gore already right. that just isn't going to carry any weight. Somebody eating, you know, raw hamburger, um, because you've already started out the film on such a high intensity as far as the gore factor. Mm-hmm. And so you need to ratchet that up constantly throughout the film. And if you're, you know, kind of pulling it back with those little moments. They're not going to carry any weight, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I also just like how he handled, I think it would have been very, like definitely a lot of these characters, these, you know, it's set in this kind of, you know, redneck area. um, And it would have been very easy to make all these characters completely stupid, completely inept. And there's some of that, like all all these (laughs) characters, there's some stupidity, but I don't think most of them, they don't become just a constant joke. There's just, there's enough reality and enough humanity within these characters that you actually do care about them, even in this, even in this gross over the top horror comedy, which I thought was some really impressive work. I mean, granted, some of that's writing, some of that's acting, but some of that is directorial choices too. Like when you have literally, you know, a, a, you know, you drive past the school and it's the Bassett Cooters. Like, this is where you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the fact that they made these characters even – characters you somewhat care about I thought was pretty impressive. Well, yeah, and that's that, that goes a lot, I think, in the screenplay and the casting um, of the movie and James Gunn's direction. It's just he allows for the characters to have humanity to them without, you know – having these backstories that are over the top and pull you out of it. It's just in the, I don't know, they're, they're, 
they don't feel like they're coming from complete uh they're not absolute archetypes uh the villains are for sure yes um but i i think our protagonists in the film are definitely um allowed to be more rounded out yeah absolutely that's actually something that i wrote down as far as you know michael rooker's character i thought like for the beginning of the movie like i was enjoying it but i thought maybe they were overdoing a little bit of making him you know the the this overdoing this negative character introduction well like not only is he you know kind of lecherous and kind of a jerk and doesn't listen to his wife but he's also cheating on her and getting drunk and like this is what's leading him to his to his you know eventual doom but i was but i think it works uh after you kind of finish the movie and see everything he goes through and see that there's there's a part of that character that does care about his wife but i thought like the first 10 minutes of the movie i was like oh man like this is a little much for me so when the I kind of had a little bit of the opposite reaction mm. to that, um, I, I'm, at least I, I feel like I did because I still felt that way this time. Um, when he tries to have sex with her and he leaves that night, um, and then as soon as he comes back and he's infected, that's when the character is allowed to have interest in Michael Rooker at that point. Mm. Um, that him as himself it's just she can't be attracted to that version of it but as soon as he's this other thing then that's when he becomes fixed in a way um mm. in her eyes and she starts seeing the possibility of that of him that she's maybe didn't settle or whatever that is but you have to assume that these two have had sex before that they've been married for a little while that, right you know there's been something there it's just we're not allowed to see that in a way i guess because um we have to see that ugly side of Rooker. And so just that well, her curlers were in Chris. What do you expect? <laughs> Come on. It's not, it's, I, I, I don't know. It's about as subtle as everything else in the film, but yes. that is just one thing where it's, I, I kind of liked the idea that maybe if you would have left it at settling, it would have made her more unlikable, but just the fact that she was in the wrong marriage, mm-hmm. um, that they really just tried to make her a little bit too sweet. And it just, that was the one part of it that I didn't necessarily care for. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, so let's move to the to the kind of acting section. So let's talk about Nathan Fillion. I think, you know, you mentioned kind of at this point uh, when this movie comes out, people know who he is. I think he's in a weird way the, the draw of this movie unless, you know, uh, Michael Rooker is your draw. For me, like <laughs> I really I really liked this performance, but it did feel – it did feel a little bit like he's there to have the reaction that the audience has. Like there's a lot of moments where something crazy happens and his reaction is, what the fuck is that? And that's our reaction too. So it becomes a little bit of an audience surrogate, but I did like the performance. What about you? Oh yeah. His performance is, uh, it's fine as it always is. I, there's a, uh, a sweet spot that Nathan Fillion has, and it's either with a Southern accent or without a Southern accent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's your choice. But when you hire him on, you're going to get this thing. You get what you get. Part. Yeah. And he's really good at it. I actually mm-hmm. think he's a really talented actor, but um, he's he's this one thing. And I think, he, yeah, he's fine. I actually really enjoyed him uh, in this movie. And this is one of those things where a couple years after this, I went back and started watching Buffy again and, you know, kind of things I had missed initial. Oh, run. right. That's and, right. He was a villain in Buffy. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that then I just started really digging him. And then I think it was maybe two years after this, something like that, um, when they had the um, Dr. Evil. Was that the name of it? That web series? Oh, yeah. yeah. He was Captain Hammer. Yes, that's right. There you go. <laughs> that, that came out. And that was just this guy is the shit. He I will watch anything this guy does. He became... Um, in a way, a, a more talented version of Bruce Campbell, I think, for me. 
Yeah, I can see that. Like, just kind of, no matter what he does, he's just infinitely likable. But if you want to see him as an evil priest, uh, check out Buffy. So, (laughs) (laughs) it's very weird to watch that, watch him play a character like that after kind of falling in love with Nathan Fillion as, you know, Captain Mal Reynolds and in Mm -hmm. movies like this. It's, It's definitely a very different performance, but it... You know, I, I think you're right. I think you sign on Nathan Fillion. You you know what you're getting. Like I don't I don't think there's been a role that has really stretched him much. And it'd be interesting. And I don't even know if he's interested in that. Like he seems to just be having a real good time being Nathan Fillion. So you know, and I can't really fault him for that. So if you know, if you were Nathan Fillion, would you be okay with being that? As yeah, and especially if you're going to pay me to do it. Goddamn right, I would. Yes. Well, and. Th- that, and he's also, I, you know, just looking at his IMDb right now and going through it. And of course I get to the top and of course he's Canadian. That just makes uh, sense. It really does. That's, that's fitting. So <laughs> speaking of Nathan Fillion though, what did you think of his, his interactions with Elizabeth Banks? Did that kind of pseudo romance, did that work for you, the two of them together? Oh, it was fine. It's not, I mean, this isn't the kind of movie that, you know, this isn't love story. This isn't, <laughs> you know, this isn't even Brian's song. Um, this is just something that. <laughs> You know, it's not distracting and that's all it needs to be. But there's yes, there's definitely a chemistry between the two of them. And I could I could definitely see them doing something that was just a lighter kind of romantic comedy and absolutely believe the two of them together. I think they do play off each other really well. Yeah, absolutely. I think really like strangely, the the most impressive person to me here is Michael Rooker. And I think it's because like strangely, Michael Rooker's the shit. He is. But I'm I'm always. I'm always impressed when an actor is willing to go through like this kind of transformation for a movie that you know <laughs> like what nine people are going to see in the theater like this must have been a lot of work and a lot of time but it still looked like even like when he's when he when the character is suffering it looks like Michael Rooker is having a grand old time in this movie and just like yeah let's do it why not like again seems definitely like a gamer and i really liked his performance here because it would be very easy with that beginning to have him just purely be a villain but by the end of the movie you do actually kind of care about this guy and and kind of you know you kind of feel bad for him given everything he's gone through i have a feeling that if you were to interview michael rooker he probably doesn't even know that he did this movie probably not um he, he, <laughs> he barely like knows the movies guys. he's doing right now like that's yeah, I, and, I, and i don't think that that's from a place of stupidity or I, I don't think that he lacks the capacity to know that i just don't think he gives a shit i think that right. he's okay there's a bump in pay for doing the makeup how many days do you need me done okay let's yep. move on next thing he just seems like a journeyman right um he's definitely a, a working actor yeah, it's it's interesting when you when you think about that because I think there are there are some actors where this is clearly like, oh, acting is my passion. I have to be really careful about the roles I choose. And there's some actors like, no, this is a job. <laughs> this is how I pay my bills. So yeah, of course I'll do that. Of course I'll put on the makeup. You're going to pay me to do it. That's great. And I, you know, it it's it's interesting. I think there's this divide between those two types of actors. And in some ways, I think I respect, like you said, the journeyman actors and actresses. Just a little bit more, you know, because they're just they're out there and they don't get to like, well, I'm not going to take that low pay for that movie because I have a nomination and I'm an award winning (laughs) actor. Like, no, I'm just going to we're going to make a movie. Let's do it. Well, I think that I as far as somebody not taking something uh, because they're not getting paid enough for it, if you have a certain amount that you expect to get paid for it. Great. Good on you. That's Mm. fine. It's when I have to hear about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) going down to. 
minimum wage to do this movie and spending, you know, eight weeks in a snow tent. When he already has know. 800 million in the bank, like exactly. poor baby. And, and then, and then <laughs> it's the pretentiousness of things like last night when they start referring to performances as brave and that kind of shit. And it's just <laughs> stop with that nonsense. And that that's a, a lot of that is on actors. Um, but more of that, I honestly see in critics Yes. And in the Twitter world where they start talking about the importance of these things. And I think that it's really that's to make themselves sound important from a critical point of view yep. from the actors having a passion for your work and thinking that it's important. I don't really have a problem with that necessarily. Um, like you said, though, I do prefer the you know ones that are more on the electrician side of the thing <laughs> as opposed to on the uh, you know method side of things. So yeah. I, if if you sat me down and said you're in a movie and you're, the co-stars of it were – Marlon Brando and pass, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, if, or Michael Rooker, I, I think I would much rather go have a beer with Michael Rooker at the end yeah. of the day. And not only that, he's probably a lot easier to work with, not just easier to hang out with. Oh my God. Yes. But like, yeah. Give me Michael Rooker any day. Like, you know, Marlon Brando, you might get a better movie, but you gotta, you gotta suffer through it. <laughs> you yeah. gotta make the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, is there anyone else that like that stood out to you in this cast? Anyone that is particularly memorable other than those kind of main three? Um, well, there's, there's moments where there's like Lloyd Kaufman's cameo at the bar just always takes me by surprise where he's the sad drunk guy. Yeah. Um, I enjoy that. So, but that's, you know, again, my big, you know, trauma boner from my teenage <laughs> years. Um, there's the opening but, of the show right there. What, what's that? I said, there's the opening of the show right there. <laughs> No, I think that that's probably the longest it's taken me to get into it. Yeah, so. yeah, you did good. <laughs> what did you think um, of the actress who played the, uh, um, you know, the daughter who was in the who was in the tub? You know, the kind of very oh, Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street moment there. You know what? Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because there's um, kind of touches on the acting and the directing with that. Um, I, I think she's fine. She's absolutely fine. There's, you know, her performance is exactly what it should be mm-hmm. um i think she's not as seasoned as some of the people around her right so there's a little bit of lack of experience there but there's something in, in around that family where the way they kill everybody off including her two younger sisters which is just in a movie that has a lot of stuff that's way over the top that's one of those moments that's just like jesus christ they actually <laughs> right did they that. are not pulling punches like oh we're killing no, children too cool and for a guy like me especially now that's something that i am very unforgiving of in film when they don't handle it right that it's just but in that's the amazing thing about this movie that stuff like that is still handled in a way that it's not offensive because it, it doesn't feel like it's being done for the shock value it's just being done in a way that's like yes this is you know nobody in this film is safe so i I think it does add to the tension a little bit more so um, which is nice cause that's right towards, you know, heading into the third act and it works out really well. And I think that's one of the reasons why that does. So when her car is completely surrounded in that moment after, um, you, you, uh, have a pretty safe assumption that she could be, you know, dead at the end of that. So right. no, I, I, but she is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other person that stands out to me and it kind of brings us into the writing cause it's my first note there is Greg Henry, uh, who plays the mayor. Uh, oh, who, yeah. Like, sure. just always plays a slime ball, and he's so good at it. <laughs> like, I, you know, the character is introduced, 
you know, through cursing, like he's telling someone to go fuck themselves. And then someone just says, hey, morning, mayor. Like, and he just like, I think it's a great little moment. And I actually found myself surprised at how long that character lasted. Uh, because he yeah. seems like the horror stereotype where like, oh, he's such a jerk. He's going to meet a terrible end and it's not going to take very long. But he's there basically until the end of the film. So what would you say if you're going to Greg Henry? Is there a specific uh, role of his that stands out as his best slime ball that he's played? Mm, that's a good question. Let me let me look at his uh, his IMDb page, which is long. Jesus. It's oh, no, in... he, he's it's well over 100, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 164. That is a lot of TV work, of course. Um, hey, there's nothing, nothing wrong with no, no, girl, no, sir. nothing. No, I'm not, I'm not Mike. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm you trying. Know, to... he, he might talk shit, but for a guy that knows as much as he does about Dawson's Creek, I mean, come on, <laughs> he's not it's above a, it. It's a really good point. Actually, the thing I saw him most recently in, which is a, a little embarrassing, is that he was he plays a recurring character in the Gilmore Girls, and he's pretty slimy in that. Too. Like just about everything he's been in that I've seen him in, he's not a likable character, like in any way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he, he, as you said, it's mostly, but do you remember him from uh, Payback? That oh, that's movie? right. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Not, not a nice that's, guy in that's that either. Those, uh, <laughs> what's that? I said, not a nice guy in that either. Just not a nice guy <laughs> in that one at all. And that's one of those, one of the rare examples of when a director's cut movie is not the better option to mm-hmm. buy. Um, so if you're going back and rewatching the original studio cut, the, the studio heads got it right on that one. And the director was way off um, because they, I don't know if you've seen the director's cut version of it, but they made it way too dark and it loses all the lightness and fun in that movie. So, right. but if you do have a chance, if uh, anybody listening to this hasn't seen payback and you don't hate Mel Gibson um, or you can stomach him still uh, check that one out. Cause it's a, definitely worth a watch. Yeah. Yeah. He's just one of those guys, like everything I'm seeing on his IMDb page, I'm like, yeah, I've seen that, seen that. And he's just, <laughs> he's a jerk, man. Like, <laughs> Dude, I mean, he goes back to Magnum PI. Yeah. Like, I was just working. seeing that. That's actually just where I was on the list. Like, man, this guy <laughs> is put in some work like this. Good gracious. Yeah. So, you know, he's a character, like I said, I expected like within 20 minutes, like I thought he'd be the first victim. Like this guy sure. is not going to make it, but I like that, that you have to kind of deal with him. And he actually, ends up, you know, doing some important things for this group. But then, of course, right after that, kind of making it worse by making some <laughs> horrible comment. Like, like he, he has something, he has some moment in there where he basically says, like, no one should have to put up with this, even if you're a lesbo. It's like, it's just like in one line, it's just like, oh, that's not, oh, man, come on. Like, there's no reason for that. So the movie never lets you forget that these people are imperfect, even if they're doing something that is like, that is heroic, that they're fighting for their town. They're trying to defeat this creature. They're still imperfect people. And that's that's really smart writing, because I think a lot of times in movies like this, where there is that character arc. And once that, you know, sort of antagonist makes the turn and they start helping out and, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to move the plot forward and they're going to be an asset to the film. They're not as bad as we originally thought when they start doing that, then they become these really innocent, pure characters at that right. point. And with him, no, he's still a piece of shit. And yep. that that's actually what I one of the things I really love about the way that this is written, that the consistency, the consistency of the characters um, Michael Rooker is the only one that changes really in the film. And that's because of the infection. Right. 
So speaking of the infection, I was wondering what you thought uh, about two things. One, that this movie combines the kind of monster movie with the zombie movie. Like you got a little bit of both Mm -hmm. here. And the fact that all of these creatures end up having, you know, essentially one personality. They all are Michael Rooker. So what did you think about those two choices as far as script goes? Well, the the hive mind thing? Yeah. I think that's a a big throwback to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh And with the opening, the, you know, pod coming from outer space, that kind of thing. I think that's one of the big references there. If not, i way off on it, but it definitely feels like that. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. And some of the uh, performances, the sort of very over-the-top stilted 1950s style acting that would have, that fit in that movie is definitely on display here. So, uh, yeah, I, I actually, but I enjoy what they do with it. Um, the, I'm not 100% sure of what the rules are with this, where it, it kind of has a I little bit of I don't think there are any. Vibe. <laughs> There's none like it's okay. There's a hive mind aspect to it. They tentacle things come out of the stomach or the worm things go inside you. You keep getting bigger and bigger. And then if they shoot you, but don't kill you, you split up into all those little slither things. I I don't understand it, but I'm I'm okay with that. It's just like whatever's grossest. Like that's the rule. But like, but isn't that kind of nice though? Yeah. If this, it takes the pressure off you as an audience to try and like figure this out. Once you realize well, there are no rules, it's like, oh, well, let's just go then. But if this was to happen um, and there was an alien invasion and these things came down, um, pretty much every alien movie, we somehow arrival as a perfect example of this. Um, we figure out the language of the aliens. We figure out what the rules are and we kind of all do this together. Wouldn't it be a really good chance that we would never figure this out, especially right. if it's in a horror or thriller setting that these, you know, people from this you know kind of small town with maybe a ged uh the maybe one between them is it (laughs) are they really gonna figure this out what's probably not creatures (laughs) there's like there's not even a science teacher in this town like there's no way there's no (laughs) way they're figuring this out like and i kind of like that i like you know I, i think there's you know there's good science fiction movies of course that are that are focused on on figuring out the rules like we're going to you know you know smart science fiction we're going to cover the day the earth stood still later this month on the show and this is kind of the opposite end of this the original the original okay yeah i watched both of them and that was a mistake uh so we're covering <laughs> the original but yeah it does yeah. kind of take the pressure off as an audience like you know from the beginning this isn't a serious movie but i'm sure it would be tempting from a writing perspective to like make these rules very structured and be like this is what happens when the slug leaves the body and this is like no just whatever we want to build that's what it's going to be like let's just this is a fun movie it's ridiculous let's let it be ridiculous and there's probably some writers that they need to write within that format. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. I think that's kind of like an acting thing where you build the backstory for the character, even though it'll never be established or, you know, explored in the movie itself. It's something that you're able to give to the performance as you're going through it. So as a writer, if you understand the rules of it, then, you know, and you make them really expansive to where nobody could possibly understand this, but maybe you're working within that framework and it makes sense. But I think you're right. I think James Gunn just decided to do whatever the hell he wanted. Right. Yeah. The other thing I like about this script is that they don't end up forcing our two characters who are who clearly are attracted to each other. They don't force them into a romantic relationship by the end of the movie. Yeah, it's kind of bullshit when that happens most of the time. Yeah, Um, I was really happy with that here where it's like, 
you know, there were probably five or six opportunities where they could have, they even had this moment where they were, you know, talking about their past and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. here's, here's the moment where they kiss. Okay, whatever. Let's get it over with. And it never happens. And I like that. Like we talked about this on our episode uh, when we did a Mission Impossible episode where they always kind of fall in bed with one another, even though the world's about <laughs> to end. Like, what are you doing? Get to work. Like, and I love that they kind of take that tack here of like, that would be nice, but we have, we have to fix this. Like before anything happens. I think the problem with that is uh, they forget to play to their strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, in a Mission Impossible movie, romance is never going to be your strength. So just let go of it. Don't play into that. Never try to explore that area. I think you know if you're doing a love story, chances are gore isn't your strength. So when the guy's you know making a salad, don't have him chop off his finger and spew blood everywhere. It would feel inappropriate. <laughs> right. And so I think this tacked on romance thing – um, is something that's done to try to make it appeal to a wider audience. And so, but it, the idea that, you know, a woman won't like it unless there's this romance angle to it. And that's just horse shit. You know, they, they'll react to it just because it's good and just make a good movie. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So usually when we have these sections, the hardest one to talk about is production value, but I don't think that'll be the case <laughs> here. There is plenty, plenty, plenty to talk about. So let's just start with this. What was your favorite creature effect in this movie? What sticks out in your mind? Oh, man. Um, you know, there, there's quite a few that I actually like. Um, I would say the first time when they go into the barn um, and you see just right before it's uh, – the blob is broken down into all the little slither things just because it's so ridiculous. And it's just (laughs) this huge blob with a little face stuck in the middle of it. And it looks like a better version of something that you would see in, you know, a a horror movie that was made by a couple of high school kids. It's like Mm -hmm. that grown up version of it. And that just, those effects I absolutely love. Um, The stuff that I think I really liked at the time hasn't held up as well. Because it was the sort of the slither effect, those little snail things or whatever you're going to call those. I, I guess they're not snails because they move so fast, but whatever. The, the slugs. Those things. Yeah. Yeah, the slugs, the fast slugs. Um, so the, the those things, the digital effects, they seemed really fucking creepy at the time. And now some of the effects don't necessarily hold up so well. Yeah, um, I agree with I that. I remember loving the bathroom scene just because how itchy it made me feel. Mm-hmm. But now it's just those huge, disgusting creature Jabba the Hutt effects that I just really dig. Yeah, I think like also just the the tentacle effects in this oh, movie. It, it's so that is creepy. Some CGI stuff, but it looks good. Yeah, it actually does, and I think it it looks good because they make it a point to for most of it to not show it connected with the body, but just show the tentacles moving. And that stuff mm-hmm. really worked for me. Like it made me uncomfortable. Like I was like, I ooh, I don't want to be a part of this movie at all. This is this is really really gross. And I think that's exactly <laughs> what you should be feeling. And it means that James Gunn did his job. And I, it's it's interesting because it's not a movie where you're like, oh, the creature effects were so realistic because they're absolutely oh, not. But that's not the point. Like it's supposed to be over the top. It's supposed to be crazy that, you know, even the creature effect at the end where it's like all of the bodies kind of <laughs> in this job of the hut, gross <laughs> conglomeration. It's, uh, it's, it's Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Yeah, yeah. 
Actually, what I was thinking when I saw that scene, you know, they have the scene where she brings in this this uh, uh, this mirror that has a has a pointed edge to it. So she's going to, you know, yeah. stab this creature. I was like, oh, someone's writing Jabba the Hutt, Princess Leia fan fiction. Like that's that's what's <laughs> happening right here. Like I was like, this is this is so what's like, because, of course, she shows up like in her underwear, you know, in a robe. I was like, OK, of course, we got to have that moment. But I did notice that in a movie like this, you almost expect uh, unnecessary nudity. In a movie like this, and there actually wasn't that much of that here. Like it, it didn't fit into that kind of trashy horror trope, which I appreciated. Well, I think that's what happens when you end up on the lower budget stuff, because that's again mm. playing to the strength that there's a certain segment of. I guess there was at one point in time, uh, prior to the internet being what it is now, where they would go see a movie like this just because they knew they'd be able to see some boobs. Yep. Um, now, fortunately, you know for my many problems that I have with the amount of exploitation we have online, they can't really use that as an excuse anymore. So hopefully yeah. people start dropping that from their films. Yeah. I mean, people can see that and so much more and so much worse for free at home. So why <laughs> you don't have to go to the movies for that. No. That's, that's plenty. Yeah. So I was actually really impressed with the, with the creature effects here and I didn't expect to be um, because it is one of those movies that, you know, is made for, you know, made for pennies so, but I was really impressed with the work. Dollars is a pretty big budget. Yeah, that's true, especially for a for a smaller horror movie. Yeah, but they, I think they put it to good use here. Like the the money that they had, you could tell went into these, went into the creature effects, and they they didn't feel real, but they felt like they were in the room. You oh, know, they, they felt like they were part of that world, which I think is what what really matters in a movie like this. Yep, definitely. All right. So, what is one of your favorite scenes? Favorite scene in the movie? Um, oh God, let me see. I, I the the bath scene is definitely one that stands out mm-hmm. from memory. Um, but I honestly like the one that comes right after that, uh, just where the girl runs away and just the way that he shoots the inside of the car, where you don't actually see all the slug things uh, coming over it. But I love from, that sequence, the shadow yeah, going over the it's truck. It's all yeah. in shadow. And yep. for a movie that has something that's so over the top, there's those little moments like that. It's actually done in with subtlety and just it kind of it gives me the chills a little bit when I right. saw that. It's just like, oh, that's fucking creepy. So I'm going to make a really weird comparison here. So feel okay. free to, to, <laughs> to laugh me <laughs> out of the room. But it actually reminded me of the truck scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Where yes. everything okay, is shot from like just from the inside and it's kind of – it's a polar opposite of that, right? So in this, you have the shadow. You have the darkness and that. You have the light Instead shining light. in. But you have yeah. a very similar sequence where you're trapped inside this truck and you're terrified because you don't really know what's going on on, on the outside of it. So I had that thought as I was watching. We never thought I'd watch a James Gunn you know, over-the-top horror movie and think like Spielberg classic. Yeah, that's – Has Andrew just gotten stuck in your head? Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's – <laughs> yes. Uh, but actually, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, it's not so much the scene, but there's a there's a whole bit of dialogue about them thinking that that this is Lyme disease. And this just tickled me <laughs> to no end. Like that whole sequence just killed me. That's like, right. That was and, good. and the argument back and forth between uh, between the mayor, and between Nathan Fillion, like that stuff really worked. And it was the one time in the movie I felt like Nathan Fillion really got to got to interact instead of just seeing all this crazy stuff and going, what the fuck is that? Like he got to have a little bit of fun there with dialogue. So I really liked that sequence and it really hammered home that kind of small town. Like these people probably don't really know what Lyme disease is. They have no idea what it would look like. They're all um, bumpkins here. 
these people know what Lyme disease is. They, they know well, it's what true. disease If is. anybody would, like, there's much more of a chance. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, these are people that live right up against the woods. So, yeah, they, yep. they, they probably know more so than people in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. Yes, absolutely. So I, I really love that sequence. And, of course, like, you know, you brought up the bathtub scene, which is even though you have the kind of over-the-top special effects that are noticeable, um, mm-hmm. I, I – I, of course, I love the the kind of uh, the kind of play on Nightmare on Elm Street in that scene right there. Like I, I like the the kind of the connection there, and it does give you this feeling of like, oh, this this is this is itchy. Like I do not want to be here in this room. And I love that they show them kind of along the walls, and you're not sure if anybody from this family is going to escape. And it does really kind of keep you on the edge of your seat in that moment because you do remember, like during this whole movie, like these people are all innocents. Like they haven't done mm-hmm. anything wrong. It's not the the horror trope of like, oh, well, you did something morally wrong, so you're going to get punished. This movie kind of flips it on its head. And some of the people who have done wrong in this movie or who are, quote unquote, bad people last the longest. They last all the way oh, to yeah. the end. So, And it's um, that, that scene specifically. I'm not sure if you had this thought also on the Nightmare on Elm Street thing where um, it for some reason, those slug things, when it goes in her mouth, I mean, not for some reason, it's obvious oh. why. It takes on the quality of a tongue. And yep. that reminded me of so Nightmare on Elm Street with a phone scene. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. But almost like to me, this was much creepier because it was – I think it was played a little bit less for a joke. Like it is a, a darkly funny moment. But the moment in Nightmare on Elm Street is like very, very over the top and very ridiculous, especially because they uh, had – Scared the hell out of me when really? I was a kid. Huh. Oh my god. See, this what, is what scarier to me. that movie? Uh, probably like – 12 you're probably? a broken man <laughs> i was a broken boy <laughs> <laughs> and hence you're still a broken man yeah nothing has changed it's tragic but yeah this scene like i don't know because re- you know, at that moment you didn't know if if this character was going to survive or not and i like that they ended up using that sequence as as plot building too to to explain like who these creatures are and why they are all of one mind. I like that that actually did connect with the rest of the movie. It wasn't just a scene to gross you out or scare you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always, the, the kind of hive mind thing, There's it's always been one of my favorite horror science fiction tropes. I, 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 there's something about that that's just so frightening because it's so easily um, a commentary on society. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that definitely works. All right. Um, so now we move to the theme of the movie, which is settling. Uh, and I really <laughs> felt like there was so much in this movie about settling. Like, of course, the most obvious thing, I think, is, you know, our main female character kind of settling in a romantic relationship. Um, but there's also this whole discussion they have about her wanting to go off to Hollywood and try and become a real actress. And she ended up settling in kind of every area of her life. And the the kind of real discussion psychologically is, is that good or is that bad? So as you're watching the movie thinking about settling, how did this how did this work out for you? Um, well, my, my immediate thought was that we're actually watching this, trying to come up with a deeper theme or meaning behind any of this. This is a little bit of a struggle. (laughs) I'll be honest about that. (laughs) Um, and with how it is, I mean, settling is it's, it's a spice that's thrown in and it's one that's thrown in so many movies. It's just a pretty much a cliche almost. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's something that is definitely here, but it's not what's important to the movie. It just the idea that people have dissatisfaction in their life. 
um, is something that can move them forward and it's something that makes people relatable. Um, people that have shit figured out and they know exactly where they want to go, how they want to do it. They might be fun to watch when The Rock is playing them, but when it's but who wouldn't people, be? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I you know people that have shit figured out are like self help gurus and they're annoying. So yeah, they're you, the worst. You want to spend what's that? They're the worst. Yes, <laughs> and so yeah, I, I think most people want to spend time with people that are you know a, l- a little bit damaged and they don't necessarily have things figured out, and it's an easy writing shortcut to you know, relate to people and to make them accessible. Cause you have somebody in a small town that wants to become something else. I think pretty much everybody has that no matter where they were born, that desire at some point in their life. Right. Or, you know, if you don't have it, you probably think to yourself, what the hell's wrong with me? Why don't I want anything else? Why am I content? Yeah. I, I think it's interesting when I was doing the research, as far as settling, basically one of the, the main things we find is that, and this is, this is a hard trick, but it's the idea that Everybody at some level or another settles uh, because you have to make compromises to be in any kind of relationship. (laughs) Even if you think you're marrying up, you're still making concessions when you're in a relationship. So the key – Oh, you're you're, you're making a ton if you're marrying up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like I'll do anything. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, probably (laughs) more so than the person that marries down. Exactly. But the idea is to realize that you're settling but not – it's all about how you take it in. Like if you view settling as this hugely negative thing, it can be really – it can be really bad for your life. But if you feel like, yes, I'm settling in this way but here's what I'm getting back. Here's the other side of the compromise. Then it can actually help you out. But I don't think our main character here – sees things that way i think at the point especially at the beginning of the film she sees that she has given up and settled for so much that she doesn't see that she's getting anything back do you think that idea of settlement um as a psychological kind of aspect to it that that goes back or has its roots our dissatisfaction um goes back to our lack of mobility now that we're in that we're supposed to move around that we're supposed to be nomadic and we're supposed to be you know hunters and gatherers and we're not supposed to be settled in one place um so that when we are comfortable and we don't have anything to strive for that our minds sort of turn in on themselves and they find a lack of comfort and we blame our marriage and we blame our job and we blame that we didn't you know get to play guitar with the rolling stones but right. really it's probably the fact that we're just living a way that we're not really supposed to yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. Like, what's what's it called the seven year itch? Isn't that the mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And it's this this idea. I think if we get if <laughs> it's really backwards, and this I don't know if this is backed up by by the studies or not, but just from my own my own experiences in life, we get we get a little twitchy when things get too comfortable. Where it's like, yeah, everything's fine, I guess, but look at all the things I could have done. Look at what I, who I could be if I was single, all the freedom I could have. I could move anywhere. I could do anything. And really, you probably wouldn't. No. You'd probably still sit on your ass. You'd just sit on your ass alone instead of next to somebody on the couch. But yeah, I think there is something to that, that a lot of the problems that we as humans have come from this, come from this evolutionary base where like we look, if we look back far enough at what humans used to be right now, we could not be more different from where we started and that stuff is still in our dna that stuff is still there that need that kind of wanderlust that you know all that stuff or even just you know uh not being monogamous like that's that's another part that i think probably is is kind of predates you know our our families and everything else is that that's something that's been in our dna and that's something that's not terribly natural for humans back then and we're kind of forcing ourselves into this peg you know, and I think settling has a lot to do with that. 
You know, and I, I, the monogamy thing and a lot of this, I think, can come down to as we are now, as we understand life and comfort. It really comes down to, as Tim Allen so rightfully put it, oddly enough, a lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, in his stand up, he had this thing where he would talk about how he I think it was Tim Allen. Maybe it was Robin Williams. I can't remember. Somebody that was kind of like a family. Let's comedian. say it's Robin Williams because Robin Williams is awesome. And Tim M- much Allen, better. Not so much. Yeah. yeah, it was somebody. But the idea was that. um you could go out and it's this lack of imagination that you see a beautiful woman walking down the street. And instead of just having this momentary fantasy and saying like, I wonder what it would be like to fuck her. You go out and fuck her. And mm-hmm. so you just lack imagination that you could go down. That sounds and have like a Robin Williams joke. Is it? I think so. Yeah. Okay. It's something like that. And I, that's one of those things where it's kind of always stuck with me hmm. in a way, because I think there's a lot of truth to that, that we sometimes we, are meant to explore our imagination and have these ideas in the back of our mind. Um, but we don't separate that from desire or we don't separate that from, you know, what the outcome of that will be. We just have these impulses and we act on them. And that lack of restraint is something that's very difficult for me to respect and to understand in a way, because I mean, I get being in the moment, but there's always a part of you that understands consequences. It's just, you know, we just want to ignore it. (laughs) monogamy as this idea of like writing it off is saying, you know, if you're married and you or in a committed relationship and you've said to somebody, I'm not going to fuck anybody else, not because I don't want to, but the idea of you doing it and you fucking someone else would devastate me. Right. So I have to at least give that back to you as a sign of respect because that wouldn't be right. Yeah. So I I think we lie about the, the, the motivation behind it. And that's where part of our problem comes in. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so that's it for Slithers. So now we're going to talk about the movie uh, that we're pairing that with. Who thought we would talk about monogamy uh, with this movie? A really deep conversation. Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. No, see, that's, things down. No, that's the point, right? Is that you can start <laughs> with these movies and talk about, even if it's not a deep movie, it's a ridiculous movie. We can still talk about things that are important. I think that's good. Dave, that's the reason I have to talk to you, though, because I do this shit with my wife and she gets annoyed with me. <laughs> well, I only have to do this for an hour. So <laughs> she has to do it for, her for the life. rest of her life. So she gets to go, you know, no. <laughs> well, I mean, she has the one thing she has going for her in she married someone older than her. So, you know, she, I, Men live shorter periods of time anyway. Statistically, she's a lot healthier than I am, and I have nine (laughs) years on her. So she's going to have plenty of life. She'll have a nice nice bit at the end there where she'll have some peace and Ah. quiet. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the movie we're pairing this with is The Belko Experiment. And basically I'm doing this because I just couldn't bring myself to do an episode on Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I just just like, you know. there's like would you? Well, when it comes to podcasting, like if you're going to do like a Disney movie like that, like there's no winning. Like either you're like, it was great or – um, it was, you know, it's a popular thing and I don't like it. Like you just like, uh, you know, let's just let beauty and the beast be what it is. It's going to be a live action Disney movie. It'll probably be really pretty to look at and people mm-hmm. will love it. You know, just like Cinderella was really pretty to look at, but you probably will never watch it again. Like, and that's fine. So I thought let's do something a little off color and you can't get more off color than <laughs> Slither and the Belko experiment. So, <laughs> so this is another, no. another horror movie written by James Gunn also stars Michael Rooker. Um, so we have that uh, that connection there. Also, uh, John C. McGinley, who I think most people would prob- probably know from Scrubs more than anything else. Uh, How dare you? It's, it's a tune. Yeah. Well, old people like us. Talk radio. Sure. 
Yeah, Come on. more people. I guarantee you, a million more people have watched Scrubs than either of those movies. Then, then they lose their Twitter film credit at that point. Well, lucky them. That's <laughs> they're better off. Wasn't he in some Happy Madison movies along the way too? Oh God, probably. Let's not even okay. get into that. <laughs> so, I guess the the basic plot of this twisted social experiment: eighty people are locked in a high rise corporate office in Colombia and ordered by a voice coming from the intercom to participate in a deadly game of kill or be killed uh so think about this movie are you excited about this movie are you looking forward to this yeah absolutely a, a return to horror for james gunn even though he's not directing it um he's he can write horror about as good as anybody does so i'm i'm excited for it i want to see it yeah i mean i i am too like i actually saw this trailer i can't remember what movie we were watching but it was a couple weeks ago i saw this trailer and i was like this looks insane. Like what is happening? And then of course it says at the end, written by James Gunn, I was like, Oh, okay. This makes a little more sense now. So I kind of like the fact that he's going back to his roots a little bit here uh, and kind of getting to do something. I I'm sure guardians of the galaxy. It's probably fun to play in that world and fun to play with a huge budget, but there's also a <laughs> lot of constraints that come with that. And a lot of people you have to answer to. So I'm looking forward to James Gunn being able to unleash in a movie again, I think. So So this looks like fun to me. Like this, And it's an hour and 28 minutes. Like it's going to be get in, get out. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be gory. I'm looking forward to it. It reminds me of another movie um, called Would You Rather. Have you seen that? No, I don't think so. It's on Netflix and it has a similar premise, um, except it's just a bunch of people sitting around a table yeah. and they have to answer the question, would you rather do this or that? And then it gets passed on to the next person if they don't do this. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of uh, people compare it to Saw as far as like a torture porn aspect of it, but it's not that at all uh, because it's actually well acted and a lot more fun to watch. Uh, mm-hmm. Saw just has a good ending. So yes. would you rather is a kind of fun one too. Okay, nice. Yeah. So, you know, if you uh, if you don't have kids and you'd like to see a movie that's uh, not G rated, <laughs> then uh, you should uh, do what we do on this show and go see the Belko experiment. So. All right. Uh, so before we head out, Chris, uh, one more time, maybe tell people how they can contact you on Twitter so they can bother you there and you control them. Oh, yeah, please. It's uh, following underscore films. Please just g- give me something to troll you about. I would love to. I, I, or troll me. That would be fun. It's the way that you can tell me that you love me or hate me. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The best way is to go on Twitter, find me at PCK Study, or you can really go the extra mile and sign up for our Patreon. And there you can actually donate on a per episode basis and get some really cool rewards while you support an independent podcast. And if you want to hear more great movie podcasts, head on over to followingfilms.com and check out the Following Films podcast and the True Bromance Film podcast. So next time you hear my voice, Mike and I will be doing a new release review, not on Beauty and the Beast, but on the Belko experiment. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. You know, it was almost getting to the point where it was post-election, where I start, you know, kind of like narrowing down my Facebook friends because it's some of the stupidity that I was seeing this morning. So I was actually looking for Trump news because I was just tired of hearing about the Oscars. Yeah.